Very good. Thank you, Barb. Wasn't that wonderful? It's good to be reminded of these things through songs. If you want to get your Bibles out, if you don't... Well, you know what? No, yes, get your Bibles out. We'll turn to Luke 24, but we're going to go through a ton of verses this morning. They're all pretty much up here, so you can just kind of chill. But we are going to look at this first passage right here in Luke 24, 13 through 27. As you're finding that in your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever, let me pray real quickly for our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would open our eyes as we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, speak through me to build your church and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is the famous Road to Emmaus passage. This is the day of the resurrection, and Jesus is about to have a nice conversation with two men. Starting in verse 13 in the Gospel of Luke. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And they're talking about, obviously, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that was going on in the city of Jerusalem at that time. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? He said to them, what things? They said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I'm going to ask you this question this morning to prepare you for this. If you could be a fly on the wall during any conversation in world history, which one would it be? Now, Jim Moore, he's a journalist, he, he answered this question this way. He would like to be a fly on the wall of the conversation during which Harry Truman, having been kept clueless about the atomic bomb until he assumed the presidency after FDR's death, was given his first briefing about the weapon he would ultimately order to be used against Japan. 
says, even Kennedy's discussions about calling out Khrushchev in 1962 seemed to me, he says, to pale in comparison to Truman's coming up to speed conversations about the power of a weapon no nation had ever used before and with such destructive power. Can you imagine the look on Truman's face when he found out there was a weapon that could be that destructive and that humans had really for the first time a weapon that they could replicate and literally destroy themselves. I mean, the implication of that would have been staggering. Now, one conversation that I would like to be a fly in the wall is the one Jesus had with the two men on the road to Emmaus. I mean, I wonder what Jesus said to these two men, right? Well, this sermon is kind of just my guess as to what he may have explained to them. Now, the text tells us he began with Moses. You see that in verse, what is it, verse 27? Beginning with Moses? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it makes sense because Moses, of course, wrote what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, there was no New Testament at this time, and so Jesus would take them through, I would ex- expect, from Moses all the way down through, to some extent, Malachi, and explain to these men all that was spoken of him, the Messiah. And so what I'm going to do this morning, and we're going to look up a ton of verses, but you can put your Bibles down. They're going to be up here on the screen. This is my guess, I think, at what Moses would have said to these men, or what Jesus said to these men. And he probably began here. Everything begins in Genesis, the very first book, the beginnings. This is the curse of God to this serpent. So that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Scholars recognize that this is the first reference to a coming Messiah who will defeat Satan. Notice that there is two offspring, right? The offspring of the woman, godly offspring, and the offspring of the snake, ungodly offspring. And the snake, in the form of Satan, or Satan in the form of a snake, will bruise the heel of Jesus. That's a reference to his death on the cross. But Jesus delivers the fatal blow. He will what? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. A reference to his resurrection. Do you ever see the movie The Passion of Christ came out a number of years ago? I know probably most of us did. Do you remember the scene where Jesus is praying in the garden? And he gets up, and what does he do? He crushes the head of the snake that was by him. It's a direct reference to this verse. In the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, of a coming Messiah, reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus also may have explained to these men the need for a substitute sacrifice. Work your way through Genesis, you go to Genesis, Leviticus 17.11. God set this whole system up, and this is what it is in essence, that the life of the flesh is in what? The blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So there need to be a a blood sacrifice, a substitute payment for the sin. Because the Jews, above all people, knew that sin caused death. And that God would accept the death of a substitute. Indeed, it was God who offered the first blood sacrifice. When was that? 
in the very Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, he sacrificed an animal, shed its blood, and made coverings for Adam and Eve. But you see, the Jews also knew that no animal ever offered satisfied God completely. Well, how do we know that? Because he had to offer animal after animal after animal after animal after animal. You see, we see priests today, maybe the black outfit with the little white collar and so on, and sitting in their office preparing a sermon or doing whatever. Do you know how they saw priests back in those days? They were primarily butchers. They were, they were constantly sacrificing animals. And no day of atonement sacrifice satisfied the nation because the next year, what they have to do? Have another sacrifice. And the next year, another one, and another one, and another one. It was relentless. They knew one day God would provide the perfect sacrifice for sins once for all. That, of course, is his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why perhaps Jesus spoke of Abraham and Isaac. But God commanded Abraham to sacrifice the promised heir. Abraham said this to Isaac. Remember this? Where's the sacrifice, Dad? And what does he say? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering of my son. This picture is a perfect future sacrifice that God would provide for his people. Perhaps Jesus spoke to these two men regarding the first Passover in Egypt. Go forward in history. Remember this? This is God instructing the Israelites. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. This is the first Passover. Remember that? And of course, what happened right after this? The angel of death came and passed over all of the doors and the homes that had the blood on it. And those that didn't have the blood, the angel of death came and struck, I believe, was the firstborn of the family. This would make sense that Jesus would use this because he was sacrificed on the cross during the celebration of Passover. Jesus also could have mentioned the bread God provided from heaven to his people while wandering in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. You remember this? Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Think about it. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6 in regards to himself? Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Who is the true bread out of heaven? It is Jesus. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, what? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Or maybe Jesus referenced the book of Deuteronomy and Moses' desire for another prophet like himself, but only better than him. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And it's kind of funny when I read this because what was the one problem Moses had with the people? Millions of people in the wilderness following him to the promised land. Did they listen to him? 
No, they did not. Just have kids. You'll understand that, right? Why don't you listen to me? Verse 18, I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus himself claimed to be this prophet. Do you know that he only, the words he spoke were the only words he heard from his father? In John 12, 49, he says this, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I like to think that Jesus claimed that he was the one who was hanged on a tree, cursed by God, and taken down and buried before sundown, as stated in Deuteronomy 21. I mean, this is Old Testament, folks. Look at this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And of course, what do we know about the resurrection, or what about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? He died quickly. He was taken down very quickly. In fact, he was taken down before sundown. And of course, that leads right up to his, his resurrection. And perhaps Jesus quoted this verse to these two men. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to what? He was not going to decay or rot while he hung on the cross. He was taken down before sundown. All these prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and there's more. He may have reminded these two men of the very words he spoke while hanging on the cross. My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me, right? This is a direct quote, did you know, from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the same psalm, Jesus may have also reminded them that he was to be viewed as a reproach and sneered at by people. Did anybody read maybe the, the last portion of the Gospels? It talks about uh, the death, the crucifixion, you know, all of that, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ this past week. Anybody read that? You read that, you'll find out that this was all predestined by God. And I'm going to show you that this morning. Look at 22, 6, and 8. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Did that happen to Jesus while he was being beaten and while he was hanging on a cross? Absolutely. All who see me sneer at me. Was he being sneered at? Yes. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now watch this. This is what's recorded in history of the exact words of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders hurled at Jesus while he was dying on the cross. Look at this. And see if this doesn't sound familiar. In the same way that the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Look at that. He what? Trust in God, let God rescue him, because what? If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. 
The exact words from Psalm 22. Again, staying in Psalm 22, he could have, that is Jesus, reminded these two men that his bones were pulled out of joint in order to be crucified. It says that right here. Or that he will be out of strength while hanging on the cross. Or that his hands and his feet will be pierced. Or that his clothes will be divided up as lots, by lots as he dies. Surely you remember that if you've ever read the story of the crucifixion, right? Now we're in the Old Testament. All of this is playing out. You have to start to think in the back of your mind, you know, what are the chances of this just happening randomly? Or is there something behind this? More importantly, someone directing all of this. From the very words Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To he was a reproach and to be sneered at, to his bones pulled out of a joint, to losing his strength, to his hands and feet being pierced, to his clothes being divided up by lots as he dies. All of this detail came from one psalm. It's amazing. He also could have reminded them of Psalm 41.9 that says the Messiah would be betrayed by what? A friend. Look at this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. What does it mean, ate my bread? What happened on Thursday night before the trial and the crucifixion on Friday. The Last Supper, where he gave us the sacrament of what? Communion. And he gave the bread and the wine. He may have reminded him of Psalm 69.4, look at this verse, that the Messiah would be hated without a reason. In other words, he would be sentenced to death without just cause. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. If you stay in the psalm, stay in Psalm 69, he may have quoted this, reminding them of the Messiah's cry of thirst, and then he was given what to drink? Vinegar. Remember this? He also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me what? Vinegar to drink. The sour wine that you read in the gospel accounts that's vinegar, folks. It's translated vinegar in the original language. All of these things are happening to him while he's on the cross. Yet they were foretold they would happen hundreds of thousands of years before. I mean, listen to this. This is John chapter 19. The apostle John wrote this, verses 20 and 30. After this, Jesus knew that everything had been done so that the scripture would come true. He said, I am thirsty. There was a jar full of vinegar there, so the soldiers soaked up a sponge in it, put the sponge on a branch of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' mouth. When Jesus tasted the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and died. This is what was written in Psalm 69. 
go forward in time. How about the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah said this. Does that look familiar? I give my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. He gave his back. What does that mean? Give his back to be scourged or flogged. And to his face he was humiliated? Yes. Did they spit upon him? Yes. I mean, Isaiah even prophesied that the exalted Messiah would be marred more than any man. But what happened to Jesus? Well, he was beaten, spit upon, flogged, a crown of thorns forced on his head, bones pulled out of joint, and nailed to a cross. He was so marred, so beat up, he has hours of being beaten in the face. What happens to a face when it's used as a punching bag? It swells, and you cannot, you don't even recognize the person. Have you ever seen someone get stung by a bee that's allergic to bees, and they, they swell up, and they're hard to recognize? It would be something similar to that. Look at this verse, Isaiah 52, 13 and 14. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And I wonder if Jesus took these men through the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. If you ever want to know anything about a prediction for our coming Messiah, this is the chapter in the book in the Bible to go to. Because this chapter views Jesus on the cross. He would probably reminded them and you can just listen to this, because they didn't put these verses up here. But this is in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 4. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's exactly what they thought of him while he was hanging on a cross. He may have reminded them that the Messiah's side would be pierced, and he would suffer vicariously for the sins of the world, and that he was scourged, verses 3 and 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chasing of, for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging or by his stripes, we are what? Healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's exactly what was happening at the crucifixion. He may have reminded them of Isaiah 53, 7, that he would not open his mouth to defend himself at his trial. Did he do that? No, if you ever read the account of the trial, he doesn't say anything. He rarely defends himself. That's why verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And so parents, you have to remember this, so you can use this against your kids. Don't open your mouth and argue with me, because Jesus didn't do it, right? 
yeah, that'll work, right. He may have reminded these men that he would be with the rich in his death. Did you know that? That he'd been in the tomb of a rich man. Look at verses 8 and 9. Of, just listen to this, Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Who was the rich man with Jesus? Joseph Arimathea. Had his body taken down, had a tomb especially prepared for him, a rich man's tomb, and put him in that tomb. Perhaps Jesus reminded these men that he will be the acceptable sacrifice to justify the many. This is just, it's amazing when you read these. This is Isaiah 53, 10, 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, referring to Jesus, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That was what was happening on the cross. It wasn't just another man dying. He was bearing the brunt of God's wrath for our sin. Now you think about Friday. What we call it Good Friday is kind of beyond me. It was a, a painful day, a necessary day. But what happened, what does the, the Gospels tell us while he was hanging on the cross? I think it's from three to six our time Darkness fell upon the land. It was during that time that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? What was happening during that eclipse, whatever you want to call it, that darkness fell over all the land? Well, God the Father had turned away from the Son. And what was he doing to him? All of his wrath for your sins, for my sins, for the world's sins, not Jesus, he was innocent, was poured out on him during that three-hour period. For the purpose of what? Justifying the many. He was a perfect sacrifice. This, Jesus may have reminded these men that he would be included with criminals in his death, and there was one on each side of him. He was supposed to be buried in a criminal's grave. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. The Messiah will come and be the final perfect sacrifice. It was clear that the Messiah was going to die as that final sacrifice. And perhaps Jesus went further and he quoted Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament, 9-9, Zechariah 9-9, reminding them that it was he who rode into Jerusalem on what? A donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even in a colt, the foal of a donkey. He may have reminded them of Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. That the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah also said that the money would be thrown on the temple floor. It would be picked up and used to buy a potter's field. Every one of those details came to pass. It says this, I said to them, it is, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took three shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. It's exactly why Matthew wrote this in verse Matthew 27, 6 and 10, that the chief priests did what? They picked up the coins that Judas had tossed and said it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. They knew they killed Jesus innocently. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it has been called the what? Field of blood to this day. Matthew goes on to say, then that was was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. I mean, these are details upon details upon details. My wife would love that. She's very detail-oriented. I'm a big picture person, but she loves the details. But these details, I mean, these things are playing out in the life of Jesus, and especially during his arrest, during his trial, during his death, and even his resurrection. All from the Old Testament. Maybe Jesus quoted Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Let's face it, even though the spear that the Roman soldier had pierced Jesus' side to see if he was dead or not, in reality, who pierced Jesus? All of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. So I hope that you saw this morning that the emphasis on the Old Testament, it really points to one person and one person only. It is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to save the world from sin. If there was ever any doubt that all of human history is his story moving towards its destined end, then this sermon should have erased those doubts. Again, the detail of the prophecies surrounding the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ are staggering. Let me put this into perspective for you. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner He's the chairman, let me get this right, of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College and chairman of the Science Division at Westmont College. He outlines the mathematical probability of one person in the first century fulfilling just eight of the most clear and straightforward Messianic prophecies. More perspective, I just share with you just over 30 verses. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're going to dumb it down to just eight. And what's the mathematical probability of that? Well, 
It should be right here. Look at that. I don't like math. Okay. We find that the chance that a man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten. That's 17 zeros. Okay. Now, in case you're wondering, a few years ago, the Mega Millions had a 1.6 billion jackpot. It was October 2018. You know what the odds of winning that were? One in 302 million. Stoner went on to calculate the probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies. That's one and 10 and 157 zeros behind it. But there are over, you know how many prophecies there are that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament? There were 300. Over 300. That established the messianic credentials of Jesus. One final picture before we close. To help you visually comprehend the staggering odds of this probability, Stoner proposed that we take that many silver dollars that 300 prophecies would be fulfilled, 10 to whatever number that is. Take all of those silver dollars, lay them across the state of Texas. In doing so, we would find that they would stack up across the state two feet deep. But wait, there's more. Mark one of those silver dollars and stir up the entire mass of coins. Then blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him that he can travel as far as he likes across Texas, but that he must pick out the one marked silver dollar. That is how difficult it would be for one single man to fulfill the 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament. The last week we talked about false religions in a different sermon series. And there are many religions out there. I want you to see that Christianity, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is based on fulfilled prophecies. There are good reasons to believe in the God of Christianity. And what it comes down to, again, is this simple point here. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Christianity is the only religion that, where it says, you can't get to heaven, you can't get to any good place by yourself. Every other world religion is work-centered. Christianity says no, it's gift-centered. I will give you the gift of eternal life, but you must believe in Jesus Christ. And that's a good deal. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I get tired of trying to live up to you know, rules and expectations and stuff like that, and God says, you can't. You're a sinner, you need someone to help you. This is why I sent my son, Jesus Christ. And I've just given you a, a fraction of the number of prophecies in the Old Testament that he fulfilled to great detail, mind you. And now it's up to you.
you have to believe. Because if Christianity is wrong, then you suffer no loss. Wherever you go when you die, you go there. But if Christianity is right, and Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and you reject God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then you have lost everything. And you have no ground to stand on because there's evidence is overwhelming. And so that's the application point for this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. And as we close with this song, I pray that our hearts will be prepared. You are the great hound of heaven. You call us to yourself. You desire to be in a relationship with us, and that's exactly why you sent your own innocent, perfect son to live a perfect life on earth without sin, to die an innocent death on the cross, his blood shed as a substitute, a sacrifice for all the sins of the world, but we must come to you on your terms through faith or belief in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would all make that decision if we haven't already this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.